All right, welcome everyone to Mosaic uh, for our Sunday worship together. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to our Sunday celebration. Um, as you can see, I'm at home, and the reason for that is because this week I caught COVID, and um, I'm okay. Uh, I have a sore throat, which is not great for preaching, but otherwise I'm doing well. And I just want to say thank you to everyone who sent their prayers and their thoughts and even dropped off food and medicine. Thank you so much. It's, it's really um, just reassuring to be a part of this loving community with you. And a special thank you to the pastoral staff and the worship team and the support staff and everyone who made it possible for us to do this last minute pivot to online, uh, which is not an easy pivot to do. Uh, but thank you all for your loving service to our church. Uh, COVID is not going to stop us from worshiping God and receiving his word together. We're going to be continuing in our Jeremiah series. And as we open up Jeremiah 2, we're moving from looking at Jeremiah at 10,000 feet in the air, uh, the call of a prophet to now finally letting God say his peace. Uh, he's going to be speaking here and he's going to be pouring out his heart. He's going to be pouring out his words onto the pages of our scripture. And we see why it was so urgent for God to get his words out. Because when we look at today's passage, we see God as a broken hearted God. We see God as a broken hearted spouse pouring out his heart as it's cracking with pain onto the pages of your Bible. He's expressing just how hurt he is as our God who has had his people commit adultery and break his heart. I kind of see God as a spouse who is sitting on a counseling couch and just pouring out his heart and saying, I don't know where to start. And as we begin, we look at his expression of he's remembering the early years of devotion that we had to him. And then he moves on from those early years of devotion to our adultery, how we hurt him and broke this relationship. And then at the end, we're actually going to see some words of hope, some silver lining in all of this. And so won't you bow your heads with me as we prepare to hear God pour out his heart to us. God, this passage is raw and messy. Father, I see the pain behind your words. Father, as I try to convey this, I pray that you would be with our people so that we would be receptive even to hear hard things because we need to hear them because our relationship with you is paramount in our lives. And so, Father, be with us. Speak. I pray that we would be listening. <clears throat> and we trust you to bring redemption of all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we look at uh, this passage, it opens up with God talking about the early years of devotion Let's read verse one and two. It says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Now God says, where do I start? Maybe let me start from the beginning. It wasn't always bad. Our marriage used to be good. It used to be sweet. I remember the devotion of your youth. You see, God is remembering the time when he saved us out of Egypt and he brought us out of Egypt and he saved us by his mercy and grace through the Red Sea as he part the Red Sea with miraculous grace and we walk through. And he remembers a time when our clothes were still damp from the Red Sea and our sandals were still squeaking with the water from that sea and our mouths were full of praises for him. 
our lips had nothing but worship and thanksgiving to God. He remembers that time when we were our hearts full of gratitude because of what he had done for us. And he says, oh, I remember a time when our marriage was so sweet and your devotion to me was so, so sweet because you remember that I was your gracious God and you were my bride. It was real devotion. It was real love. And he says, you followed me into the wilderness in a land not sown. What he means by that is that there was a, it was a dry and desert land that couldn't be sown. It was just hard and dry and not fertile. And so the people of God relied on God to give them everything that they needed. They, they couldn't provide for themselves. It was a dry and barren land. But God graciously and mercifully every day provided for them the manna that they needed to live, provided for them the water that they needed. God, out of his gracious hand, gave them everything. And it wasn't a a fertile and abundant land like Canaan, but it was a time when they relied on God and fully trusted in God. God says, I remember that time. I remember that time early in our marriage when you trusted in me and we had each other and you had everything you needed. It kind of reminds me of um, a young couple, maybe uh, at the beginning of their marriage and they don't really have very much. Maybe they live in a small shoebox apartment and there's not that much food in the fridge and there's not that much to pay the bills, but they have each other and they have what they need and the love is pure and it's there and the devotion is there. God says, I remember when we had each other before You had an abundant land, you had me, and God is remembering that devotion that we had for him. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you now that God is thinking about when you were devoted to him. I want to ask you, do you remember when your lips were full of praise for God? When worship time meant something to you, when the praise was something that actually moved your heart? when it wasn't just a precursor to listening to the sermon, but it was something that actually you wanted to do because you had praises to God, you had thanksgiving to God, you had devotion to Him, and it meant something to you. Do you remember those times? Because God remembers those times. God remembers those times, and He wants those times back. Do you remember when the Word of God meant something to you? Do you remember when the Word of God was something that was alive and living and you wanted to actually live out the Word of God because you loved your Savior? God remembers those times. Do you remember when you prayed because you wanted to talk to Him? Do you remember those days when you wanted to hide away and to speak to your Lord? God remembers those times. And He says, I want those days back. Not only that, God laments. He laments how he loved us. Look at verse four. It says, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? When after worthless, worthlessness and became worthless, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and and made my heritage an abomination. You know, God does what a lot of spouses do when they're cheated on. They compare themselves to other couples. And sometimes they say, you know, my friend Jeff from work, he's a terrible husband. He neglects his wife. He never spends any time with the kids. He cheats on his wife behind her back. 
And his wife, even though he's a terrible husband, his wife does not cheat on him. What did I do to deserve this? God is doing the same thing. He's looking at other nations and he says, look at the other nations. They have gods and they're not even real gods. They don't provide for them. They haven't actually saved them. He does not love them. There's no devotion. And yet they don't give up their gods. And yet my people, the people that I saved, the people that I actually love and care for and give my devotion to, they have left me. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? And he laments even his own love for us. He says, you cheated on me, even though I never cheated on you. I brought you into a plentiful land and all I did was lavish you and yet you still left me. You know, he thinks about the early years of devotion and then he starts in the second point here to move towards expressing our adultery towards him. What we actually did, and it gets really bad actually in the second point. Read verse 11 and 12 with me. He says, has a nation changed its gods, even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked at this. Because this is what happens. He, he begins to explain what we did here. In verse 13, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that have no water. They turned away from me and they started going to try to satisfy their thirst and things that don't satisfy them. These broken cisterns that don't hold water, they run to them. And there's so many things in this chapter, and I wish I had the time to go through all of them, but there's so many things in this chapter where God just heart dumps. But here's, I guess, just one of them, one of the scenes that God shows us of how we committed adultery. In verse 20, he says, for long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every hill and under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. You can't get away from the sexual connotations of this passage because it's real adultery. And you'll see how bad this sexual sin um, gets as we go further into this passage. But God is watching his bride commit adultery right in front of his eyes by going to other gods. Verse 22, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say I'm not unclean. I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. Let me explain what he's talking about here. God is really getting into how bad it got. You see, the Israelites, before they came into the promised land, they were a shepherd people. They were people who raised sheep and goats. And the reason for that is because in the desert, it was almost impossible to farm anything. It was just really just dry and barren land. There was no soil for them to farm. And there were shepherds. And that's why you have so many references to shepherds in the Old and New Testaments. But as they got into the promised land, they found this soil that was rich like milk and honey. And it was the gift that God had promised to them all these years. He says, when I bring you out of Egypt, I will bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to bring you into a fertile land. And when they got to Canaan, they were shocked. Just they were touching the soil that was black and fertile. And they thought, oh, my goodness, 
And God said, yes, that's my gift to you. This is my gift to you. In here, you can be fruitful. But I want you to remember, Israel, this is me. This is me giving this to you. This is my inheritance to you. This is my gift to you because I love you. I'll always take care of you. I'll always abundantly provide for you. Every time you farm this soil, I want you to remember me, your gracious and loving God. But that's not what happened. As these shepherds came into this land and started to farm the soil, they started farming next to other Canaanite farmers. And these Canaanite farmers would tell them, hey, you know, you're not doing that right. And the Israelites would say, what do you mean? The Canaanites would say, well, if you really want to grow good crop, if you really want good, you know, fruit, then you need to sacrifice to the rain god. You need to sacrifice to the fertility god, Baal. You need to sacrifice to Asheroth. You need to sacrifice to Molech. That's what we do around here. And if you do that, then you'll have good fruit. You'll have a good harvest. And I can imagine the Israelites saying, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with that. Uh, you know, we are Israelites and, and, and Yahweh, he, he saved us, you know. He saved us, you know. He, he, he brought us out of Egypt, you know. We were slaves. Did you know that? We were slaves and, and Yahweh, he brought us out. Uh, because he was gracious and he loved us. And I, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I can, I, I, I can worship Baal. And the Canaanites would say, all right, have it your way. I mean, we've been doing this around, you know, these lands for hundreds of years. And you guys are brand new here. So you guys, you know, do what you think. Uh, but I'm telling you, it's not going to work out well for you. I wonder if the Israelites started thinking, uh... You know, God does want us to be fruitful here and God does want us to have a good crop and be successful and things like that. I wonder if maybe we can do both. You know, maybe we can just on the side offer sacrifices to Baal because after all, God brought us into this land to be fruitful. So maybe, maybe we can do it, you know. And they started to bring sacrifices into the valley. You see, there's a valley where they set up these um, altars to Baal and to Asheroth and to Moloch. It was called the Valley of Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom, where all, the, all of these sacrificial places were. And they started to bring their sacrifice, their goats, and maybe even their cows and, and their lambs. And they started to bring it. And they thought that it would be like a sacrificial altar, like to Yahweh, where they would burn the sacrifice and maybe pray. But they got there. And there were prostitutes everywhere. There were male and female prostitutes everywhere. And they began to think, oh my gosh, what is this place? Uh, did I come to the right place? Because this place looks like a brothel. There were orgies taking place everywhere. And they would ask, uh, is this the right place? What is this? And the Canaanites would tell them, oh, well, you know, this land... Um, it's, it's, it's really owned by Baal and Baal is the fertility God. And one of the thing that, things that he wants of us is fruitfulness and to celebrate fertility. And so we have these prostitutes and we sleep with them and it's our way of worshiping God. It's our identity in Baal. This is what we do. And so join us. And maybe the Israelites at first were appalled at this, shocked by this. 
But over time, what happened was they began to engage in this and they lost their appalled feelings. They lost being shocked by this and they started to assimilate to the sexual culture. They started to sleep with these prostitutes and they started to offer sacrifices to Baal. And that's why God says, look at what you're doing in the valley. Look at verse 23. How can you say, I'm not unclean? I have not gone after the Baals. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. And my brothers and sisters, their adultery gets a lot worse than this. It gets a lot worse than this because what happens is these prostitutes that they started to sleep with, they did not use birth control. They were celebrating fertility. And so these prostitutes would get pregnant and bear children. They were bear these infants that belonged to no one except Baal. And when they got the sense that they wanted a little bit more crop or they wanted to offer a larger sacrifice to Baal, what they did was they started to offer these children as child sacrifices in the Valley of Hinnom to Baal and to Ashuroth and Moloch. And they murdered these innocent kids in that valley with burning fire, fire that was fed by brimstone, fire and brimstone. And they offered these children to God, their God, Baal. In fact, in the New Testament, the word for hell is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna means the valley of Hinnom. Valley is Gehenom, Gehenna. It was so ingrained in their memory, the screaming children and the burning bodies in the time of Jeremiah, then in the New Testament, the closest word that they could get for hell was this valley. And in the New Testament, it was used to burn bodies. It was used to burn animals and to dump garbage. It was a place of fire and brimstone, but it originated from the sex cult practice that the Israelites engaged in themselves. How could God not be enraged? How could God not be heartbroken at this? From the devotion that they had earlier in their marriage to God to where they ended up burning children to grow crops, to sleeping with prostitutes offered to Baal, turning away from Yahweh to get status, all of this happening right in front of God's eyes. That's why, how could God not be enraged? How could God not be heartbroken? He says, though you wash yourself with lye and, and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. How can you say I'm not unclean? I, I have not gone after the bales. How can you say that? Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. God pours out his heart. Brothers and sisters, at this moment, Receiving God's word here and really taking in what God is saying, I think that we have to stop and think about our own sexual morality. You can't get away from the sexual connotations of this passage and not let it sting you about your own sexual morality. You know, I get a sense that there is a bondage to sexual captivity at Mosaic for some of our members. Some of our members are not even fighting pornography anymore. You've just completely given over to it. No longer being shocked and appalled 
but living in it. And that's holding you captive, brothers and sisters. Even you married, brothers and sisters, just being given over to the sexual morality. And those of you who are dating, some of you just completely, completely given over to sexual morality. Maybe you started the relationship with purity and offering to the Lord, but then the world said, hey, it's 2022. We sleep around, we do this, this is not abnormal, this is what is done, and you have completely given yourself over to that in your relationship, and even with a brother and sister in Christ, you are committing sexual immorality. And it's causing deep rifts between you and the Lord. There's no progress in your spiritual relationship with God because you're going back and forth between sexual morality and trying to be with God and trying to be with your mistress and trying to be with pornography and trying to be with God and you're going nowhere and it's a trap. God says here that you're like a young camel running from here to there, from here to there. And Mosaic, I want to proclaim today freedom for the captives. Come out of hiding. If sexual immorality is something that has shamed you and is is trapping you, and it's something that is keeping you from the freedom of the Lord, I, I, I just want to proclaim to you today can be the day of your release. Confess to someone you can trust. Bring it out of the valley and into the light. Bring it out of the valley of Hinnom and into God's arms. Confess it to a brother and sister who you can trust And start to find the accountability and the freedom that comes from moving away from idolatry and adultery. I really want to tell you that it's possible. We have to stop breaking God's heart. Because what we see in Jeremiah 2 is God weeping his tears on the pages of your Bible. Because of your idolatry. Because of your adultery. But in all of this, there is a silver lining. And you may wonder what could, what possible silver lining could there be in a passage like this? And here it is. There is a silver lining, brothers and sisters, because God is still there weeping. You see, God is still here with us weeping. You know what that means? That means that when you look at Jeremiah 2, you should not see... God weeping in a divorce court, telling you, I'm leaving you because of your adultery. But what you should see is God in a counseling room, weeping because he wants to make it work. You see, God is in pain, not because he's leaving you. God is in pain because despite your adultery, he still wants you. We see this most clearly clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. As God says that, that he shows himself most clearly in Jesus. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And when Jesus Christ comes to earth, one of the people that he engages with is adulterers. In expressing the true heart of God, he speaks with adulterers in a way that tells them, I still want you. Even though you think that I want to throw you away, I still want you. In John 8, the religious leaders bring to Jesus a woman who's been caught in adultery and they bring her to him. And 
He says to them, I know that the Jewish law, the religious law says that she should be stoned to death. And you know, that itself is a conundrum for Jesus because it's a no-win situation. He can either deny that religious law and let her go, or he can execute that religious law, stone her to death, and put himself in trouble with the Roman authorities because under Rome, only Rome can execute lives. He's in a conundrum. But this woman is weeping in front of him because she has committed adultery. The religious leaders are looking on. And he says to the religious leaders, he who is without sin should cast the first stone. The religious leaders back away and watch to see what he does. And you see Jesus bend down to the ground and everybody is thinking the same thing. The religious leaders are thinking he's going to do it. He's going to stone her. He's going to pick up the first stone. And the woman is crying on the ground thinking, oh my gosh, this is it. He's going to stone me to death. And he has all right and authority to do so. But instead of picking up a stone, Jesus Christ begins to write, write in the sand. Now, I don't know what he wrote, but he writes there with his gracious hand, something not to destroy her or to punish her, but to save her. Because what you see is the religious authorities begin to walk away one by one as soon as they see what is written. And he bends down not to destroy her, not to divorce her, but to keep her. And my brothers and sisters, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us hope despite all of these condemnations that come, despite all of these um, tears that are cried out from God on the pages of our Bible, that when we see Jesus, we see a God who wants to keep us, who wants to continue with us, and who wants to make it work. And Jesus Christ could only do it. Because the sins that this woman committed in adultery, he would take on himself and bring it to the cross of Calvary and pay for all of those sins that she rightly deserved. And he would be executed on her behalf. And Rome would be satisfied because Rome would be the one executing Jesus Christ. And the conundrum is untied in the person of Jesus Christ in the beautiful gospel that we have in him. That our adultery is paid for by him. And because of that, the tears that God is weeping in Jeremiah 2 are not tears of divorce, but tears calling you back to him because he's made a way for you to return. It's a beautiful gospel, brothers and sisters. I love the way the Sally Lloyd-Jones She writes in the Jesus Storybook Bible to try to express this to kids. She says this. She said, God rescued them no matter what, time after time, over and over again, because of his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Isn't that such an amazing way 
to express God's covenant with us is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always, forever love. That's the kind of love which he has for us. That's why he's weeping tears, not of divorce. He's weeping tears of reconciliation, calling us back to him. There's one more mind, mind-blowing aspect of his grace that I want to tell you. You know, these tears that God is crying. What's amazing about these tears is that these tears are not tears of loss for him, but they're actually tears of loss for us. You see, when our spouse cheats on us, when something terrible like that happens, that kind of betrayal happens, we weep because we've lost. We weep because we've lost them. But when God weeps in Jeremiah, he's not weeping because he lost. He's weeping because you lost. You see, when we betray God and we turn to other gods and we turn to other things that, that we try to satisfy ourselves with, it's like we're sucking in sand expecting water. We're sucking in sand on the ground because we're thirsty. And God weeps, not because he's lost us. God's weeping because he looks at us sucking in sand, the idols of this world, turning away from him, broken cisterns that hold no water. He's weeping because we lost. He's weeping our loss on our behalf. Isn't that amazing, amazing love like you've never seen before in this world? And out of that amazing grace, God weeps on the pages of your Bible over your idolatry. And he steps down into our broken world and he puts that adultery on himself. So that you would not lose out on his love. Amazing grace. How can you explain this kind of love, this kind of grace? God says, you'll break my heart again, but my covenant with you because of Jesus Christ, my commitment to you, my marriage to you, you'll always break my heart, but you'll never break my covenant. I'm not going anywhere. I love you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Mosaic, this is why we have to turn from our adultery. This is why we have to turn from our sexual immorality. This is why we have to turn from these things. Because awaiting us is not just condemnation. Awaiting us is kindness. Awaiting us is a mind-blowing grace that's thinking about our good even more than we're thinking about our good. See, these pages, these tears that are on the pages of our Bible here in Jeremiah 2. It should lead us to repentance. His kindness, his pain, it should lead us to repentance because he's thinking about us. My brothers and sisters, that's the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ. He's thinking about us and he actually paid the cost for us to return. Today's the day of our release. Today's the day of our release, but you have to turn. 
from the things that are breaking God's heart. You know what they are and return to the devotion of your youth. Remember when your relationship with him was rich. Remember when your devotion to him was real. God is thinking about those days and calling for your return. There's one other thing that I want to say before I close. You know, some of us, when we think about the prospect of coming back, turning away from our our idolatry and turning away from our adultery, no matter how messy it is, when we think about that, one of the things that kind of comes into our mind is, but I know I'm going to fail again. I know that even if I turn back now, I know that down the line, I'm going to fail again. And I love that God even made provision for that. And he speaks to that in 1 John 3. In 1 John 3, this is what he says. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. I love that passage. I love that passage because sometimes we don't even have enough confidence in ourselves to go back. But God says, I know that already. I know your heart doesn't have confidence. I know that your heart condemns you even before you return. It tells you you're going to mess up again. Don't even go back. And that's why here in 1 John 3, God says, even when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. He says, your love for me may not be strong enough, but my love for you always will be. God is greater than your heart. Even when your heart tells you that it's not going to work, God is greater than our hearts. My brothers and sisters, for all those reasons and more, 2022, let this be a year for us to turn away from our adultery, especially turn away from the sexual morality that has enslaved us. Let us return to the Lord because he's crying out on the pages of your Bible because he wants you back. He has made a way for you to come back and your faithful father is awaiting your return. Let's go to him in prayer before we sing the song of response to him. want to give you a moment just to respond to God respond to him take in the heartbreak in Jeremiah take in the pain to say Lord I do want to return Lord I come and repent your amazing kindness is leading me to repentance Lord, we just, we just feel your pain and we feel your heartbreak and we're so sorry, but at the same time, Lord, we're so amazed at the grace that is the gospel. 
we're even more amazed when we realize that these tears are not tears for your loss, but tears for ours. And it wakes us up even more. It wakes us up even more to see that we should turn away from these things that have enslaved us, turn away from these things that have brought us so much shame when you are offering your son and a way back and loving kindness to us. We're crazy, God. We're just absolutely nuts. But we pray, help us to come back to sober thinking, to straight minds, to see the light out of dark minds. I pray, shine the light onto us so that we see that the way back to you is the way to life. And so, Father, we trust you. We return. I pray, help this year to be a time where we return with full devotion, just like before, and may the praises of our God be on our lips forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.